0: So I've been thinking about how uh, much luckier our fans are, or our listeners are, than our friends. Because our fans, or our listeners, can come onto the podcast, they can listen to us, talk about music to them, and then they don't have to hear us for another week. Whereas our friends, if we're at a party with them, <laughs> they just have to listen to us talk music for the entire time. What friends? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I remember having friends once. I don't know. They would come around when we're not together, but... Uh, they catch us together. They they scatter.
1: We have to cut those music conversations short.
0: They like <laughs> all those creatures when the you know when the Balrog appears in Lord of the Rings. You, know, they almost <laughs> just run away.
1: That's right. This is only for dedicated music listeners here at Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Anyone who was listening last week and heard the uh, wonderful news that the official drink of the Adult Music podcast was back on the shelves. The Knob Creek, which Mike had found. So I went to investigate myself. And invest. He invested. (laughs) Indeed. uh, (laughs) Yeah, there is some left, but in limited quantity. So I uh, doubled my stores and it's going to run out and it's only available in one place.
0: This may be my last bottle. I used it for the, um, well, I didn't use it, I still have it, but I drank some of it for the uh, anniversary, which was the 15th, our third anniversary of our podcast.
1: So I have some for special occasions now. Like the 4th and 5th and 6th anniversaries. I to be very disciplined to make it last that long. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, this is episode 153. As we said, adult music, the podcast with music for the mature mind, bringing you six releases every week, three classical, three jazz, of the recent most interesting music. Last week, we had a really interesting recording from clarinetist. And how do you say that? Nay, neighbor? Nayist, <laughs> Someone who plays the nay. Oh, the nay. Yeah.
0: A, a nay. Yeah, I guess it would be a nayist or a... Nayist. <laughs>
1: yeah, nay player. A, nay player, not a naysayer. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, mohammed Najim. Yeah. And thanks to him for sharing our episode and with his album that we talked about, Yafo Blossom. And uh, he, he listened to the Knob Creek discussion and said, sometimes water isn't a bad drink either, and so I'm sticking with water for this episode yeah, as me too. well
0: you know the thing is it's been a a pretty warm winter here in uh, Japan, and we've so I don't know I'll usually drink the hard liquor in the in the cold weather, so I think I'd probably be an alcoholic if I lived in like Sweden or something you know? <laughs> but you know here it's just been kind of warm, so I've been kind of staying away from the the hard booze in the winter.
1: Don't even have the heat on this evening yet yeah. so and tonight. It's warm outside. We're going to have some hot music as well, focusing around keyboards. That's the theme tonight.
0: Right. We're going to get into the, the intellectual side of things in uh, <laughs> classical music tonight. So put on your thinking caps, everybody. Screw in your brain. This isn't going to be an emotionally feely kind of uh, classical music
1: segment. Yeah, you've got some uh, meaty music to get through. in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've got, got a lot of there.
0: explaining to do, basically, is what it comes down to.
1: As always, in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we're going to discuss, and at the top of the description there's a link to the full episode playlist all the music in one place on Deezer, CD, quality streaming music from France. You can also listen to the podcast there as well if you want to get everything in one place. And if you don't see the full description or recording list or the links aren't easy to follow on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over and check us out on our host site. That's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you like to listen to us tell a music loving friend as well that helps us get listed in the recommended categories and mike we were in the top 100 for all music on apple podcasts on apple
0: podcasts
1: yeah that's including like ambient background hip-hop and k-pop and Nora jones was like number 23 or something we were right up there in the top this week and so that was good to see and if you take a moment To give us a ranking or write a review that helps us move up in the recommendations as well. You can also come over and follow us on our Facebook page to get extra info and more new releases throughout the week. And I put up a bunch this week. There's some hot ones there that you should check out. Actually, one or two of those are going to end up in next week's episode, but I'll tell you about that later on. You can leave a message or comment there on Facebook as well. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. I also want to, as always, recommend you check out our friends AJ and Johnny over at The Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard podcast, where in every episode, they look at a single jazz standard, and they play little snippets of it, and they listen to different versions, talk about the history and what they like and don't like. You'll learn a lot and laugh a lot. There's a link to their podcast in the description, and if you stick around to the end of the episode, you can also check out their little promo. They come out every other week, but They had to take a week off last week, so their episode will come out the day after this one. I wonder what their new one's going to be about.
0: Yeah, I'm always kind of
1: anticipating that myself. We like to recommend to our audiences to check out each other, so if you've never checked them out, do that as well. Tonight, as always, we're going to be playing some samples of audio from the recordings so you can get an idea of the sounds. And tonight, you
0: might be sorry
1: we're doing it in some (laughs) cases. (laughs) But those clips that we play are for commentary and educational purposes, so we recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, please consider purchasing the CDs or high-quality downloads to support the artists. All right, here we go. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Lots of explaining to do it right away. Now, I thought I'd uh, start tonight's uh, classical section out with some nice uh, Baroque music, you know, just yeah. get us in the mood for, like, you know, what's coming next. Classical music was once described to me as, like, at a, at a, I used to work at a radio station that did classical music, and they would start with Baroque in the morning, and then go to the heavier music at night. It was right. kind of like a meal. You know, you had your appetizer in the morning. The main part of the meal is, like, you know, the heavier one. It mm-hmm. would be your dinner in the evening. And uh, that's how we usually... uh
1: yeah. Baroque music is logical, yeah. somewhat predictable and comforting. And so it's easy to approach in the morning.
0: Well, it's usually very cheerful too, unless you're doing vocal music, it's, it's generally fairly uplifting. I've mentioned before that that was the, uh, the era of the, uh, enlightenment. And, right. uh, that was a very positive time in human history, at least in European history anyway. Right. So you had this, all this kind of cheerful music around as well as other things. I don't want to like just kind of pigeonhole it like that. The uh, opera wanted to explore the emotions, so they'd always kind of they, they figured out ways to project emotion and things like that. But the instrumental music, it eh, wasn't quite like that. Anyway, the first um, album that we're talking about tonight is called Meditation and it's, I gotta pronounce it in French because of the sort of uh, accent over the e there. so right. it's not gonna be meditation. But I guess you could say it that way too. This is by a harpsichordist that uh, Russ and I really like, Andreas Steyer. Now, we like him a lot because he introduced us, not him personally, via an album, um, to to the music of Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach back in the year 2012 when he made this amazing recording of the uh, six uh, keyboard concertos by Bach. And it was like one Mm -hmm. of the – it's still one of my favorite albums ever. I really love it. You know, So I'm always kind of happy to see like a new album by him. And this one's on the Alpha label, a little unusual for him. I think it's a new label for him. Hmm. Uh, And it came out on February 2nd. All right, so the title, Meditation, of this program indicates that it comes with some spiritual and indeed intellectual weight. Weight. (laughs) Been to the gym today? Okay. In the booklet notes, Steyer states that music is often written about music. Okay, so we're getting into intellectual things here. Music written about music. You got this sort of thing. And certain themes and problems cannot be resolved swiftly and as a result continue through several generations. So understanding music theory is important, as important in jazz as it is in classical music too. Sure. Again, I think part of the reason why people don't listen to classical music or jazz as much these days is because jazz now, like classical music, has a history. And the Hmm. thing is rock music has a history now too, so I think people don't (laughs) want to
1: hear that anymore. Right. right There's no more guitars in pop music.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really strange. So it's helpful to know a bit about the history. And this this is especially true in classical music. The repertoire that we kind of grew up with started in the Baroque era. So that's 400 plus years of history now. And then we've now added the Renaissance and that's another 200 years. So it's helpful to know what was happening in music and in the world during these periods. Anyway, Steyer himself analyzes pieces in terms of their structure and explores the historical situation in which the work originated as part of the preparation for his interpretation. So he does a lot of work and this is really what makes... Certain artists, I think, stand out from others. They really kind of tend to be able to pull out a lot of the uh, sort of secret parts in the score because they know they're there. Through his meticulous approach, he has opened up completely new interpretive approaches and made surprising listening experiences possible. Yes, I would say that. That's especially true of the C.P.E. Bach recording Mm. that we talked about before. Now, in this album, two motifs form a thread that runs through most of the works on this recording. The first is an ancient Cantus firmus that also establishes the structural framework of the entire program. It's the second line of the communion hymn, Pange Lingua, attributed to Thomas Aquinas, and comes from the year around 1264. Pange Lingua sing my tongue is what it means. It's the sequence of notes in E major they would be E, F sharp, A, G sharp, F sharp, E. So it forms an arch with the A as its peak. And this theme would be taken up and reworked again and again, over the centuries. Let me just play this for you. I'm going to play you a Gregorian chant to this. This is not from the album. But let's hear this. And it's in the second line of the uh, chant. Now the chant goes, Panja lingua gloriosi corporis mysterium. And then the second line, sanguinisque pretiosi quem in mundi pretium. It means, sing my tongue, the savior's glory, of his flesh, the mystery sing. Of the blood, all price exceeding, shed by our immortal king. All right. So the word of the blood, sanguinisque, is the word that we're going to hear this line on. So I'll point it out. I'm going to talk over this. So let's listen. Okay, right here. that's it. So sort of that sanguine, you know that that I, I didn't memorize it really but um that's what you're going to hear throughout this album if you can remember that. So we've got that structural point. This is going to be a, an intellectual listen, listeners. So here we go. So that theme was um taken up and reworked again and again over the centuries. Now notice it's a Gregorian chant people in the Renaissance had the idea that if you used the melody for a Gregorian chant as your cantus firmus, as your kind of guiding sort of melodic line in your composition, the holiness of the words kind of got into that melody, sort of like the way, like if you throw like your red jeans in with your, all your white t-shirts, they all turn pink. So the, uh, I think the, the line, the melodic line turns, uh, spiritual because of the words that were attached to it for so long. I guess that's how it works. Anyway, so it would be reworked again and again, and we're going to hear it a lot on this album. Now, the second motif comes from a theme used in a prelude by uh, Johann Caspar Ferdinand Fischer, and we're going to hear that on this album, too. While composers in the Baroque era would often use each other's material as fugue themes in order to demonstrate different contrapuntal possibilities on the same theme, it was unusual to lift a the theme from the prelude attached to the fugue. Preludes were improvisatory, and this is probably why we like them so much. And both of Bach's movements in E major, the prelude and fugue, shows motivic and atmospheric affinities to Fisher's prelude, which is at the beginning of this program. We'll hear it shortly. Fisher's opening gesture, shaped around E, B, C sharp, G sharp, also formed the beginning of Bach's prelude, with the first E one octave lower. I'll talk about this when we get to it. The sequence octave fifth, sixth, third, forms the second leitmotif of this program. Now, the first piece on this album, Johann Caspar Ferdinand Fischer, from his Ariadne Musica, Prelude and Fugue in E major. Fischer's Ariadne Musica is a collection of preludes and fugues in 19 of the 24 major and minor keys arranged in ascending chromatic order. So it's a source for Bach's well-tempered clavier, which he would write in all 24 keys. The Fugue in E major is heard here, makes clear use of the Pangea Lingua theme at its beginning and end. Now, first of all, I'm going to play the Prelude, and this has that opening gesture, E, B, C, sharp, G, sharp, but it's very fast. You're probably not going to pick it up. Anyway, but let's hear it just so we know what we're talking about here at least, so that when I play it again, we'll recognize it. Here we go. Okay, there we are. We're off to a good start. Sounds it's like, it's like a nice uh, Baroque album coming out there. Now, the uh, Fugue starts at the 42nd mark. It starts really almost right away. Remember that arch? Okay, we're going to hear that Pange Lingua theme here. Let's hear it. And this fugue sort of moves in a stately sort of um, melody. The opening gesture of the prelude forms the second motif that acts as a through line in this recital. Okay, this really starts as a flurry of measured arpeggiated notes. There's a cool false cadence right at the end of the prelude, and then the fugue starts. And I said it has a rigid marching quality. Track two, Johann Josef Fuchs. That's spelled F-U-X. Gratis ad parnasum. This is the fugue. The Lingua theme is heard in E, in Phrygian mode, right at the beginning, and the theme is developed in fugal form. It unfolds slowly, and it's very brief and doesn't resolve its open cadence. Let's hear the opening of this fugue by Johann Fuchs. <laughs> going for these short samples tonight, because there's a lot to kind of mm. get through here. I kind of want to make this point here. Okay, the third track, Johann Caspar Ferdinand Fischer again. This is from that Ariadne Musica that opened the album. This is the Prelude in can C-sharp minor, and the notes don't indicate this, but I guess the Ariadne title is being used here as a thread throughout the opening too, because Ariadne, of course, is famous for having left the thread in the uh, labyrinth for, um, who was it? Perseus, maybe, to, you know, slay the Minotaur and find his way out of the labyrinth Mm. in the ancient Greek myth. So I guess we're getting a thread through all of this program as well. It weaves through the first nine tracks anyway. The Fugue begins at around 50 seconds and is, again, stately. Staya going for a stately mood here. Track four, Louis Couperin. He was, uh, the famous Francois Couperin's uncle. So he's in the older generation. Pavan in F-sharp minor, This is a lament featuring the second motif of the album, the one that goes to tonic fifth, sixth, third. Here, though, it's presented starkly in a stately procession of tones. So it's very easy to hear. Let's listen to this. warm kind of yeah. feeling to that piece. I really like it a lot. Okay, so Staya outlines various sections of the score by changing his tone in this track. He's got a quieter, more muffled tone in the second minute, then returning to full tone in the third, and this goes on throughout the track. There's some lovely sections, and especially the one in six minutes and 30 seconds caught my ear, where it goes into the instrument's high end and quietens in tone. It comes across as having a bit of a hush over it. And we're going to sample that section as well. Here we go. Some really compelling harmony in there too. I really like that. from The Baroque era, track five, Johann Kaspar Ferdinand Fischer again. That Ariadne Musica Prelude and Fugue in D major. This has sparkling opening figuration, almost like a carillon bells ringing out, and played boldly by steyer here. The fugue starts at 40 seconds and is lively, featuring enthusiastic repeated notes, kick-starting the theme that's to be put through the fugal process. Both movements are very brief. Track six. Johann Jakob Froberger, Richard Carr, 4. The panjalingua Lingua theme is heard in G, Mixolydian mode, and it is nakedly exposed at the opening. So let's remind ourselves of what this sounds like. Here we go. Okay, so we heard the arch theme at the beginning of that. That's the Pange Lingua second line. At 1 minute and 20 seconds, a new, more rhythmically active section starts, and then at 1 minute and 57 seconds we hear the opening tempo again. Track 7, Johann Caspar Ferdinand Fischer, Ariadne Musica, Prelude and Fugue in A major. This has a lovely andante-type arpeggiated figure at the opening. The fugue is very lively. It starts again at the 40-second mark and proceeds like a jig with a triplet rhythm. It's over before you know it too. Track eight, Johann Jakob Froberger again, Meditation sur ma mort futur in D major. That means meditation on my future death. (laughs) It's quite a thing to be writing a piece of music about. Anyway, it features the second motif, the one that's used in the uh, Fischer prelude. And it's pretty easy to hear at the opening. It's presented slowly, but the ending is disguised by the harmony. Let's hear the opening of this track. might be heading to a cadence there but i thought i'd take that out okay and track nine froberger again fantasia two the theme is heard in e phrygian mode and the theme is easily discernible brightly and slowly played at the beginning this piece also moves in slow stately fashion okay so i've spent a lot of time pulling the two kind of threads out of these um pieces and sampling them just to get a the sound in your ear of what this album is like. And it's very pleasant. It's got some really nice uh, bits yeah. on it. Some of the fugues are intellectual. Tracks 10 through 15 are an original composition by our harpsichordist, André Steyer himself. And it's called Anklänge, which uh, means echoes. Six pieces for harpsichord. Okay. So this piece emerged from conversations Steyer had with the composer Brice Pauset. They discussed what it meant to compose at this point in history and what the implications were for composing for historical instruments. An interesting question, really. I mean, you're composing a piece for an instrument that was played like 400 years ago and isn't really played anymore regularly, except when you're playing historic music. Steyer worked on these ideas, but didn't finish them until the lockdown of 2020 gave him the opportunity to. The pieces are based on six chords, which are shown in a blurry copy in the booklet. (laughs) They couldn't put them in focus. And... They looked harmonically adventurous when I saw them. I was like, oh, man, this is going to be uh, quite an adventurous piece, which they proved to be upon hearing the work. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. The chords conceal both of the motifs used to develop this album. Let's just say uh, this is a very, I'm going to be nice and say it's a very intellectually inspired (laughs) composition (laughs) and particularly inspired by Baroque techniques. Steyer comes across as a huge Baroque nerd in these notes. For those interested in the technical aspects, I'll refer you to Steyer's booklet notes, which you can see online. He doesn't go into great detail about the works, just gives you enough to understand the composition technique. He says nothing about the second and fourth movements, though the title of the fourth really speaks for itself. Okay. Track 10. This is the first of these pieces. Tempo flexibile, which means flexible tempo. Now, he says this is based on canonic techniques. A canon. Is when you have one voice, and then that melody starts repeating a measure later in another voice, like "row, row, row your boat" when kids sing that. Right. Okay, now we <laughs> you hear this comes on, and we're we're not in the 18th century anymore, Dorothy. <laughs> Let's listen to this. I kind of feel like we have to get out of this now because people <laughs> might tune out because they might think we they've lost our signal or something. There's a lot of silence in this piece. All right. Now, first of all, I do want to say from that first chord, you couldn't possibly make a bigger statement on an antique <laughs> instrument than you did with a chord like that because I don't think a chord like that has ever been played on harpsichord chord before. <laughs> One wonders if the harpsichord uh, had an identity crisis after having this chord played on it. You know, did it need therapy? We don't know, but this work proceeds slowly and freely as far as the rhythm is concerned. In fact, the rhythm is so slow, you don't really pick up any sense of a pulse at all. It is very flexible, as the instruction indicates. The four different speeds of the canon must be all be very slow, because I really couldn't pick up the different voices. The movement comes across as very abstract, but apparently it's not due to the canonic structure. So again, intellectual. I know it's there, not because I'm hearing it, but because I read about it. And I don't know how I <laughs> feel about that, okay? Trek 11 is movement two, Largo. The chords in this come crashing in, And I noticed that Steyer starts a lot of movements with an audible release of breath. You can hear him exhale right, right before all of these tracks. This is a ponderous movement with harmonies we don't associate with the harpsichord due to its period. It takes a bit of adjusting to accept that this timbre goes with these chords. So ingrained is the baroque into the sound of this instrument. I was rather intrigued by the arpeggiated chord sequence heard at the minute and 20 second mark, followed by a spacey set of figures. I'm going to sample from that point kind of giving me a sense of like angst listening to this <laughs> okay at two minutes and ten seconds we hear the opening motif again and feel we've uh, regained the thread of the piece familiar motifs are heard from here on providing signposts for the material in between this piece doesn't have a pulse the tempo being very slow so it sounds like harpsichord sounds and figures isolated in space as you've heard the movement has an interesting lack of an ending it just sort of arrests itself on a chord the third movement, Track Twelve, Conforza, is based on canonic techniques, inversion canons with ascending axes of symmetry. <laughs> I don't know what that means. If we examined the score, we'd probably figure it out. You know, an inverted canon is gonna—it's upside down. I guess is what it means. The opening chord comes booming in, so close is the recording. I remember, the harpsichord is a quiet instrument, and we're hearing it pretty loudly on this album. There are a lot of quick, followed by slow figures, and I'll just have to take Steyer's word for it, that there's an inversion canon structuring the work, because again, I can't make them out. Track 13, movement 4, Un Poco Più Lento Del Preludio BWV 878 Okay, that prelude that he refers to in the title is by Bach, and we're going to hear it later it's on track 16. But this piece has nothing audibly in common with that, although it may have some harmonic similarities. There's lots of crashing and sustained chords. This movement, and really all of them, are closely recorded so that the sustain can occur. The decay on a harpsichord is very, very fast. It progresses and jumps and starts with contrasting sections broken up by long, unexpected pauses. Harsh harmonies, of course, given the chord Staya has based the entire work on, and I'll isolate a passage that grabbed my ear since it stands out for me amidst the rest of the material. This occurs at um, 6 minutes and 30 seconds into the track. Next track is track 14, Movement 5, Sempre Legatissimo, also based on canonic techniques. He says this is a kind of a crab canon. Again, a crab canon is when you have a melody line, and then the crab part is when you play, you put that line backwards, you play it backwards, sort of like if you were to put it after the first line, it would be like a, what do you call that when the word spells the same thing, (laughs) back and forth. All right, so anyway... So you play the uh, canon backwards and then that's the, uh, but except for playing it afterwards, you play it at the same time as the uh, contrapuntal voice. Now, he says this is a kind of crab canon, and I don't understand what that means. Either it's a crab canon or it's not. So I guess he has, he's kind of altered it somewhat. Oh, okay, here it is. A crab canon is when the two lines are the backwards version of the other line. So if you laid them out one following the other, they'd be a musical palindrome palindrome that's it yeah crabs can walk backwards hence the name and since it's a kind of crab cannon it may not be exactly but i'll leave more nuanced listens to you dear listener anyway this moves with arpeggiated material and there's apparently a backwards cannon in there somewhere but it all moves in such a swirl that i can't make it out it doesn't really matter though the cannon is the structuring element you don't really have to be following the um the melodies it's the most immediately approachable movement of the work so far and very brief and under two minutes and i kind of want to give him a little bit of a make this a little more appealing so i'm going to play the beginning of this one too from there. The final movement, track 6, Esitando, hesitating. The last piece may be considered a kind of personal diary, Staya says, even as a declaration of love for Bach. It starts high in the harpsichord and rather pleasantly with a sort of a juxtaposed set of rhythms in the different voices. Let's hear the opening of this movement. A lot of pauses in these works <laughs> the rest comes across less harshly than the first four movements but it's rather ponderous one wonders how bach would respond to this love letter at three minutes and 30 seconds is a long pause that one could mistake for the end of the movement but it goes on with dark chords in the low end of the harpsichord the potentiometers are open so loud that we can hear steyer's darth vader like breathing in the quieter passages at the end all right now track 16 is the final piece on the album, Johann Sebastian Bach's Prelude and Fugue in an E Major from the second book of the Well-Tempered Clavier. And this follows the Steyer work without a pause, as Steyer intended for his piece. So track 16 is the Prelude. It's connected to the last movement of Steyer's work. It comes as such a pleasant release that I actually exhaled along with Steyer when it started. I want to try to play this from the end of the previous track into this one. Let's... uh hear the end of Steyer's work and then the beginning of the Bach. (laughs) All right. Now you, I bet you could easily guess when the Bach piece started. I don't have to <laughs> point that out to you. Also, the beginning of the Bach, when you hear that uh, opening four notes, that's the um, Lingua theme, and that ties this work to the very first track on the album, the Fischer Prelude. Steya takes an allegro tempo on the slower, more contemplative side, yet the piece breathes as though meditating on itself. It feels really good, like a refreshing shower after our previous <laughs> Steyer composed adventure. At 2 minutes and 30 seconds the B section of the prelude begins after a brief pause. At the 4 minute mark we hear a lighter tone on the opening material's repeat, and then track 17 we hear the fugue. This fugue makes clear use of the Pangea Lingua theme at its beginning and end. Let's hear it one more time at the beginning as it's hard to make out amidst all the voices at the end. Let me just play the beginning of this fugue subject. (laughs) So you notice the arch figure at the beginning, again, the Lingua theme from the second line of that um, Gregorian chant. The theme is played very slowly and a stately pulse is used for the fugue. Uh, Stein makes a good deal of the music on this album proceed in this stately way. And that's the album. It's an intellectually stimulating program and a rather meditative one. It's a bit on the heavy side as a result, but it's still very pleasant to listen to should you choose to forego the intellectual identifications of the themes. It's pleasant to listen to until Steyer's work comes up, that is. (laughs) That's going to appeal to those who relish the intellectual in music and those people only. Now, the entire album comes across with a sort of unity to it, and that's a result of the motifs being threaded throughout the program and the overall style. Don't let the meditation title fool you. This is a meditation as contemplation on heavy themes, not some kind of musical incense. The album won't appeal to everyone, I'm afraid, but it's well worth hearing as Steyer is one of the best harpsichordists out there and has something worthwhile to offer here. The album comes across as one of those that are made for other musicians and scholars, like uh, one of those movies that no one sees that win the Best Picture Oscar, or at least used to. Like those movies, Steyer's got something to say, but you'll have to meet him halfway to hear it.
1: I followed what Steyer explains about the pitches and motifs the historical works are based on. I read the notes first. I was enjoying that, and I was even picking out some of the lines on the keyboard here, how they're in the different keys in the works, but then when I got to his original pieces and I looked at the chords. I don't think my ears were quite ready to hear the Cantus Fermi put together quite like that, so I had to go back and read it again.
0: <laughs> when I saw the chords, I figured he'd break them up, yeah. but he yeah, doesn't. He plays no, them yeah. like that. Like I know.
1: I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, so yeah, it's an intellectual challenge and a challenge to your ear as well, but it all makes logical sense if you can get to the root of what's going on at any particular time in there. So if you're up for the challenge, go for it.
0: Yeah, okay, if you're up for the challenge. It is a very good album. We just want to say that, but not for everybody. All right, next, an album that's probably going to be for more people <laughs> than it has been in the past, actually. This is uh, Olivia Messian's Tarangalila Symphony, composed from 1946 to 1949. This is a gigantic orchestral work, which also has a piano and an Ons Martineau. Now, an Ons Martineau is sort of a... <laughs> French electronic instrument that sounds a lot like a theremin, but it's got a keyboard and sort of a ring, I guess it's a ring oscillator, they call it on it. I haven't really thought about this for a long time. I once got to hear this piece played live and it's, you see this gigantic orchestra and this is at the Symphony Hall in Osaka, in fact. And the Owens Martineau is right in front of the stage with this really weird wooden speaker cabinet. And it's just an odd thing to see. I think only a handful of people in the world actually play it. Anyway, on this album, we have the great Marc-Andre Amlan on the piano, and that's really why I wanted to hear this, because we have a bit of a Marc-Andre Amlan theme tonight. He's also the pianist on the next album we're going to talk about. And the uh, Ones More to know player is a player I haven't heard before, and I'm going to guess her name is pronounced Nathalie Fourget because in English, her name would be Forget. forget. <laughs> it's spelled like that. I'm guessing she's French. Anyway, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra is the orchestra, and this is conducted by Gustavo Gimeno. This is on the Harmonia Mundi label, released on uh, February 2nd. And this is Gimeno's first recording as music director of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. The work was performed to mark the orchestra's centennial, and the Toronto Symphony has recorded this work before in 1968, with none other than yeah. Seiji Ozawa conducting. How about that? Right. We just talked about him. He recently passed away. And we talked about him, I believe, last week. Last week, yes. Yeah. It's a good choice of work because it's a love song and a hymn to joy. And what else would you want? Mike, I almost wish we did this last week yeah. for Valentine's Day, but uh, we're a little late. Messian described the love of Tarangalila as fatal, irresistible, transcending everything, suppressing everything outside itself, and the joy. As superhuman, overflowing, blinding, unlimited. Wow. Okay. Tarangalila is a made up word, and I've always heard that Lila is play. Okay. And uh hmm. but from Sanskrit, the booklet note describes it as course of the galloping steed. Oh. I don't know. Maybe hmm. I would think Lila would be play of the galloping steed. I don't know. But that's I've heard it translated differently. Anyway, the work prepares the listener for a supernatural journey where life and death, sensuality and rationality clash. It's a song of love on a cosmic scale. Messian uses the onde Martineau as a, and this is a quote from him, supra expressive voice, alternating between the most terrifying sounds, which are the metallic timbres, and the most diaphanous sounds, which are extraterrestrial timbres. I guess that would mean the onde Martineau. The solo piano is intended to make the orchestra sparkle and the French word for sparkle that's used by Messiaen is diamante, which is kind of an interesting word mm. because it's a verb for diamond. So to diamond, he wants it to diamond or just I guess to right. sparkle like a diamond. Diamante l'orchestre to make the diamond sparkle and reproduce the bird songs. The celesta and vibraphone represent a gamelan in Balinese style. I never really thought about that before. Hmm. You could think of this work as a triple concerto. So you have the piano, the Ones Martino, and the celesta and vibraphone together forming sort of a gamelan sound. Every time I've heard this work, it's been kind of on the heavy side, but somehow, first of all, this goes by pretty fast. It's a 73 minute work on this album. And in the past, I've always heard works of this work go over 80 minutes. So there's some pretty swift tempos, and that's very impressive for a work that requires such virtuosity. One of the things about this piece that interests me is the the ons martineau that theremin sound the ons martineau yeah. sound sort of uh, if you grew up the way we did with uh tv and uh reruns <laughs> of old 1950s horror movies or you know, science fiction you know, science yeah. fiction movies you know the theremin sound the on martineau sound which is similar they would always be used to indicate like some extraterrestrial life form you know <laughs> in the movie so it's hard to really get that out of your head for at least my generation when you hear this but this work um, just despite the enmo toau having such a big role in it continues to be messian's like most famous orchestral work it's right. the one that's most often played and it's gigantic as are all of his orchestral works anyway let's give you a sample of this the first uh, movement is called introduction moderey on paul vif and there are different themes. The first thing we hear, we hear a rush of strings, then we hear the statue theme, and then the duet and clarinets play a flower theme, which is the fragile beginning of an amorous attachment, and that leads to a love theme on the Onde Martineau. There's a lot of stuff happening. Let's just uh, sample the beginning of this so that we're in this sound world. <laughs> Now you're hearing a lot of elements right away. The metallic piano sound, the Ones Martineau, you know, swooping upwards. You're going to hear these themes quite a bit in this album. You heard the gong and the bass drum. (laughs) And let me tell you, this is an impressively transparent yet very present recording, especially in the percussion. There's lots of detail on the recording. Here, the statue theme's Ones Martineau swoops quickly with the piano sounding appropriately metallic with its icy tremolos. The tempo is on the fast side, making the chorale for the statue theme connect into a sort of theme. We really do hear the flow of the voices. I think it's supposed to sound more rock-like, but Cimeno has made this kind of appealing here. The piano and clarinets and swooping Ones Martineau lead to the flower theme at 2 minutes and 15 seconds, vaguely reminiscent of the woodwinds in Petrushka's room in Stravinsky's ballet. Remember it, because you'll hear it many times. Amlan's technique is so amazing that he makes one sit up in astonishment with his rapid scales at the three-minute point. The bass of the piano doesn't register as strongly as the percussion on the recording, but it sounds fully and uh, has a good reverberation to it. We hear the uh, ending like pendulum theme. It's kind of like a continuing clock-like sound after the four-minute mark, sounding almost melodically bouncy in this interpretation. Track two of this, I should mention, ten-movement work is called Chant d'amour un, so Song of Love number one. Okay, so the opening anguished mood is broken by a crescendo preceding the rondo refrain. It has two themes. The first one is virile and the second gently feminine on on Martinot and strings. I get a strong sense of the rhythmic figures at the beginning of this movement. I think I can squeeze both of the themes into this sample, so let's hear both themes, the virile one and the uh, more feminine one. So that On Martino theme is uh, the love theme, and it just kind of, it just makes me think of love on the moon. <laughs> you know? It does have kind of like a dripping sensuality to it, but it's an electronic sound. It's kind of interesting. Okay, so the size of the On Martino at two minutes come across as almost human, and the piano has a lot of character and clarity, despite playing mostly figures. Track three, Tarangalilo one has a dreamlike opening that the notes say veer towards nightmare, but I don't really think of it that way. I just think of it Hmm. as sort of larger than life. We get the gamelan shimmer in this. There's a distant sound on the clarinet that opens the movement, and then we hear the uh, trombone and, quote, gamelan section come in. And I want you to hear that. So this is the trombone and the gamelan at the one-minute mark of track three. complex stuff happening in that scoring. So you heard the high metallic sounds and the kind of the crashing like metal sheets. That would be like the gamelan. And while you're hearing that, you're also hearing almost this spacey Ones Martineau kind of like doing glissandos like it's like shooting stars in deep space. That's just really fascinating to me. Toward the end, the three layers are accompanied by descending piano chords and swooping distant Ones Martineau. And it's reminiscent to me of the Rite of Spring, I'm noticing these relationships for the first time in this recording. So I've got Petrushka, and now i got The Rite of Spring from Stravinsky. I feel Jimeno is drawing them out on this performance. Track four, movement four, Chantamour 2. This is uh, the second Song of Love. And it's a scherzo with two trios. We hear the love theme first, and then the opening statue theme. The love theme doesn't quite curl up like it did the first time we heard it. Instead, we hear it hopping around staccato with a wood block playing in syncopated contrast with it. I love the transparency of all the rhythmic layers on this recording. It makes the work sound lively. At a minute and 48 seconds, the Ons Martineau comes in with a passionately longing theme commented on by the woodwinds, and let me sample that for you. I like the way Forget gets like a sort of a vibrato on the All like it's singing. Yeah. It's like a human singing or maybe an android singing or something. It's hard to characterize. It's a really intriguing sound It really puts us in a, an odd interpretative place as the listeners. Shimmering strings eventually take over and at the 4 minute and 30 second mark, the piano comes in with bird songs, layering them over the juxtaposed themes. At 5 minutes and 54 seconds, the trio ends and we hear the piano playing some virtuosic scales. At 6 minutes and 34 seconds the second trio starts with the wood block and a new repeating cyclic theme. The Ones Martino melody at 7 minutes and 10 seconds is actually catchy and at 7 minutes and 42 seconds the piano starts a solo section. At 8 55 we get a straightforward statement of the love theme and the clarinets followed by rigidity of the statue theme. You might want to notice something Messiaen's music doesn't develop. It sort of moves in sections and those sections cycle around almost like it's an Indian sort of a rhythmic cycle. So he's mm-hmm. using these sorts of ideas to structure his pieces. We have to approach them in a different way than we would, say, 19th century music. Track five, my personal favorite movement of this work, Joie du Sang des Etoiles, the joy of the blood of the stars. It's a kind of a distorted version of the opening statue theme, and the flower theme is in there too. Given what I've been hearing, I was looking forward to hearing what this would come out sounding like, and as anticipated, the melodic profile is pulled out, and the orchestra itself hockets the theme beautifully, as though it were one player. Some amazing orchestral virtuosity is heard here. I think this movement trades a bit of its wildness for melodicness in this interpretation and the sense that it's a rhythmically wild movement does come through, nevertheless, without hitting you over the head with that. This is really something. Let's sample just the opening of this. This should knock you out. get this impression of some cosmic <laughs> light show among the stars yeah. you know it's really this overwhelming kind of joy just beyond anything i think humans can feel is i think what's kind of coming across here i like the sense of continuity in this movement there's impact from the lower percussion on the recording too the alms O is pretty virtuosic and there's a shimmer to the high bell like percussion we hear the statue theme at the end in the brass with percussion goading it on Track 6, Jardin du Sommeil d'Amour, the garden of the sleep of love. <laughs> the garden in which love sleeps, I guess. Messiaen describes the location as Tristan's garden. The uh, Tristan and he sold the story is part of his initial inspiration for this work. The On Martinot slowly states the love theme. And the temple blocks that you hear in this movement signify the lovers soaring almost out of time and the celesta is rocking the lovers to their sleep it's a restful movement the piano plays bird song throughout and the strings with that early 20th century massed sound plays the love theme along with the ons Martineau. sound is fantastic and all layers of this score are beautifully caught this is a soothing movement as long as you're happy with the sound of the ons Martineau. <laughs> it goes on for 11 minutes and acts as a welcome respite after the rhythmic excitement of the previous movements Track 7, Tarangalila, du. Everything becomes nightmarish according to the booklet. Again, I don't hear this as nightmarish though. The piano comes in with a lively set of figures set off by complex rhythmic patterns. There's a vividly captured solo section for percussion. The piano comes back in with virtuosic lines and we briefly hear the statue theme. I really enjoyed the percussive sounds in this movement. It ends with a bass drum thud. The notes use the word nightmarish for a word that I think should probably be sublime. It's kind of awesome, mm. but sort of really wonderful too, I guess. So sort of frightening and joyful at the same time. Anyway, track eight, Développement de l'amour, the development of love. This is the proliferation of the love theme as if the lovers could never be sated with each other. <laughs> this would be ideal for Valentine's Day. Percussion and a spacey Ones Martineau open this movement. A ticking rhythm emerges, layered onto the initial pattern. Uh, there are a lot of quick changes of rhythmic and thematic sections that follow, and we hear the flower theme often in the clarinets in this movement. The love theme in the Ones Martineau is sweepingly played. Toward the end, we hear just about all of the theme employed in this movement juxtapose. Okay, track nine. Tarangalila, Trois. A single theme swells in density. It's on the clarinet and starts a bit like the flower theme, but that needs another clarinet for its unmistakable harmony. Percussion plays a big role in building up this movement's theme, and the movement is simply interrupted at the end, not resolved. Then finally we get to the final movement, track 10, Finale. This movement consists of Dionysian cosmic joy, love triumphs. This starts out as a joyous dance with the woodblock playing a syncopated line, In the back, there's a suggestion of the wildness of the fifth movement too. We absolutely have to hear this, so let's listen. and that cycle. I like the fluid quality Jimeno gets from the orchestra. The progression of the movement sounds fluid and natural. We get to hear the Ones martineau in the love theme once more at 5 minutes and 14 seconds. There's a wild approach to the end at 6 minutes and 39 seconds filled with unbridled joy. Let's hear the end of this movement. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And that's it. While Tarangalila isn't a work that one thinks of as pleasant, this might be the most pleasant recording of the work ever made. Chimino draws out what's appealing about the score, sweetening the themes as much as possible. The statue theme perhaps isn't as imposing as it's been elsewhere, but it registers with enough contrast to let you know it's ominous. Pacing is quick acting to throw melodic lines of rhythmic sections into relief. This also means we're hearing a highly virtuosic performance. This is not an easy score to play, yet it sounds natural and beautiful here. It's a great recording, too. I guess, unsurprisingly, a team of people were involved. Carol Brueggemann of Brueggemann Music Production was recording producer, editor, did the mix, and mastering, while Erdo Groot of Polyhymnia International BV was assistant producer, and John Newton at Sound Mirror Incorporated was balance engineer. It's nice to hear this score played in such a fresh interpretation. It gives me confidence that its popularity will continue, despite the huge size of the orchestra and virtuosity required of the soloists and the orchestra, as well as the layered rhythms. It's not an easy score to perform, yet modern orchestras are playing it well, and the Toronto give it a genuine shimmer.
1: It's a huge work. It takes you through some mysterious places and conflicts. Set aside the time though to hear everything at once because you need to remember and recognize the returning themes and how they are presented differently in the movements. The music itself is rhythmic, exciting. It uses the full colors of the orchestra and then some (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with uh, mm. Owens Martineau's curious tones. And Amelon's piano stands out in spots as being really virtuosic and exciting. And the ending of the whole work is very triumphant, getting to this destination of a fantastic journey and leaving you in a really positive place. So I found it really exhilarating.
0: Right, it kind of pulls you out of yourself. It was an exciting performance, too. You mentioned it was rhythmically like vibrant. I don't remember what word you used, but that's partly the performance. This right. is a really rhythmically vibrant performance mm. it's really exciting highly recommended okay finally our contemporary composer is the pianist on the previous himself, recording yeah. <laughs> and one of our favorites Marc-Andre Amlan although we, we did his um William Bolcom piano rags and right. we also talked about his CPE Bach album two years ago and then we kind of missed out on him last year there was a 4A recording that he did of the complete Bach and Impromptus which is a double album And we probably should have done it because it's a great record. I recommend it to everybody, but I think it would have been too much of a good thing to have to hear all of that in one week for the program and to talk about each barcarolle separately. This album is Marc-Andre Amlan's uh, own compositions. It's called New Piano Works, at least that's what it says on the spine of the CD. He's the pianist playing his own works, and this is on the Hyperion label, released on February 2nd. One important point the booklet makes about Amman's approach to composition is that he has a good sense of music history and harmonic similarities and will often bring in passages from other composers' works to show their affinity to what he's composing and to include a bit of music history in his works. Now, if you're a piano nerd... (laughs) I guess like I am, if if you know a bit about like the history of, you know, Western music or of uh, Western piano music, this could be a really fun thing to listen to because there are just all these sort of quotes happening everywhere.
1: Yeah, it's similar to how jazz musicians pull in quotes from other tunes when they're reminded of a harmonic sequence and it's get a little kind of wink wink from him in spots.
0: Yeah, so we're getting Mm -hmm. a little bit of that. All right, tracks one through nine, we'll start with the first work, Variations on a Theme of Paganini. He composed this in 2011. Guess which theme of Paganini that is. It's the one that everybody does a variation on. <laughs> the 24th of the um, solo violin caprices. There are Schumann, Brahms, Rachmaninoff, Ludoslavsky. And in 1988, it says here, Alexander Rosenblatt did
2: <laughs>
0: sets of variations on that caprice theme. One of the things about it is it's got this um, chromatic section where the uh, a scale kind of leads from one melody to another that's easy to recognize in the variations, so I think that's why people like to use it a lot. You can easily find your place among all the uh, the new stuff that's being put in by the composer by that line. Anyway, the theme is track 1, Vigorosamente, and we hear variations 1 and 2. The notes say that Khan's ghost hovers over this variation. And Alcon is a an important composer to Amlan he was um one of the composers whose music put Amlan on the map in his younger days. I remember on music and arts he made a a recording of um alkan's concerto for uh solo piano there's a joke in my novel sort of that deals with that you know piano concerto for solo cello <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's a piano concerto for uh, for solo piano it's really a crazy work and Amlan's like monstrous virtuosity came out in that. Anyway, it sounds like the uh, last of Alkan's Trois Grandes Etudes Opus 76, which Hamlan also recorded. The theme is already pretty involved, with repeated notes and some clashing harmonies. It brings a smile at its amazing virtuosity. And we hear two variations on this, the first with the fast scalar harmony and the second is quieter with rushing figures. There's a rather comic ending chord too. I'm just going to sample the theme for this, so let's just get started.
1: That's the theme. <laughs> it's got a touch of a saloon atmosphere in there, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. And also he's got those like clashing harmonies, and I think he might be playing like seconds actually, some of that harmony. Yeah. It's really, you know, kind of close together. Man, he's really some kind of pianist. Variations three and four has a certain rhythmic bounce to it, and of course those clashing harmonies that Amlan loves. This is already a really nutty piece. And there's another comical final cadence. Let's just hear the opening of this movement too, or the variation three in this case. virtuosic flourish in there yeah that had a bit of the saloon quality to it too variation five is uh, barcarolle. chopin's barcarolle, opus 60 momentarily appears in this and the harmony and the melody clashes but the rhythm is straightforwardly i invented a new word here barcarolic <laughs> variation six pesante heavy the booklet says both sonically and visually on the page this variation recalls the dense chordal agglomeration of max reger or i should say rega for the german pronunciation lightly cascading lines with yes clashing harmonies track five has variations seven through ten these all have rapid lines well rapid lines in variation seven for both hands variation eight is fast staccato with a counter melodic line in the right hand quick figuration in variation nine variation 10 has odd pauses in the theme we go to track six variation eleven played in triplets at first with odd jazzy and romantic interruptions heard alternately. Track seven, variation 12, a line winding downwards from high on the keyboard, rather on the more serious side, and the line continually wavers for the entire one minute and 23 seconds of the variation. Track eight, variation 13. This is interesting. In the booklet, there's a typo calling this variation 18, and it's been corrected Hmm. by crossing out the number in red ink and writing the number 13 in a circle after the title. And in the CD booklet, it looks like a pencil. This occurred because uh, its basis is Rachmaninoff's 18th variation from his Rhapsody on a the Theme of Paganini. So the person was thinking of, I guess, mm. he may, they may have done this on purpose, just to kind of indicate the Rachmaninoff in that uh, thing there. Anyway, we go right into this from the previous track. The tempo is similar, but far more romantic in feeling. Amlan's setting may recall the Rachmaninoff version, but it's got his quirky approach to harmony. And variation 14, a la giga. We hear Paganini's La Campanella theme in counterpoint with this theme, another famous Paganini (laughs) theme. A staccato theme is heard here. By the way, that theme, La Campanella, we often know it from Liszt's um, solo piano setting of it, but it was originally a movement in his um, violin concerto, in Paganini's violin concerto. The nutty concept uh, includes a campanella at uh, 49 seconds. I'm going to go a little bit before that so that we can sample this. It was really kind of crazy, I thought. Let's hear it. Of course, Amalan has to make it even harder than Liszt's version of <laughs> it. <laughs> All right, so that's it. Track 10. We go to a new piece, and this is called, ready for this? My Feelings About Chocolate, <laughs> composed in 2014. You know, we really should have done this entire program for Valentine's Day. We should, we should have right. swapped the two and did last week's this week. But anyway, here we go. It's subtitled a very short sonata for piano and brings about an alliance with Eric Satie and Morton Feldman. In the stasis and hermetic absorption of this tiny universe, described by the booklet as a solitary love-in with a box of chocks, each mouthful a blissful sonic island given only to the self. (laughs) This isn't (laughs) me, folks. This is the booklet. (laughs) Uh, In the score, Amlan has written directions to the pianist, such as unctuous and dribbling with flavor, a repeat marked, oh yeah, once more, let's taste everything in this box, another repeat labeled, Mmm, there are still a few left, (laughs) and an unapologetic final, to hell with the diet, all gone. Anyway, this starts with some rather heavy clashing chords played softly. It rather starts sounding like distant bells chiming, and this really goes on for the entire piece, sort of like chorale chords. Are we to conclude that Amlan's feelings for chocolate are devotional in nature because of this? I'm wondering if each chord actually represents a chocolate being popped into the mouth. At uh, 2 minutes (laughs) and 21 seconds, there are some soft notes at the very high end that conclude the piece, but let's just, we can't not sample my feelings for chocolate, can we? Let's hear the beginning. if each one of those chords is a chocolate being popped into his mouth, that's, that's, (laughs) he's eating them pretty fast. I gotta say. Tracks 11 through 16, "Sweet à l'ancienne, which means sweet in the old form. This was composed in 2019. Now in 2003, Amlan recorded Nikolai Kapustin's Sweet in the Old Style, opus 28, along with other works. And Jed Disler wrote that Kapustin's sweet tapped into... African-American spirituals and gospel music through the structural contours of a Bach French suite or partita, with each movement corresponding to its precise Baroque counterpart. This description also fits Amlan's The Suite à l'Ancienne here well enough to make booklet writer Francis Pott think of the work as a tribute to Capustin, despite, again, its harmonic divergences. So track 11 is the Préambule, and it starts with some rippling figures, scale-like in nature. Harsh harmonies occur afterwards in chords, and then the rapid Petrushka-like piano figuration goes on. It ends on solid chords. Track 12, Allemande, There's a rather appealing dance quality to this, as the harmony in the high end grabs the ear. Let's hear that. He gets a lot of detail out of those chords track 13 corrente quick moving figuration in the right hand while the left plays chords and bass figures it had me in mind of a étude as far as the technique goes the continuation for over two minutes of the right hand flight of the bumblebee type line is amazing amlan's brain never comes up for air there are some variations to the approach but they're momentary Track 14, Air Avec agrément, is lovely rapid scale ripples at the upper music box end of the piano, right at the beginning. There's a dance quality that emerges clearly from the rhythm at times, but some of the figuration obscures it. Amlan scales are amazingly even, and this piece is inconclusive leading into the next movement. But first, before we talk about that, let's sample that opening music box quality. guessing a cadence isn't coming anytime soon so i'm gonna (laughs) fade out of that track 15 gavotte musette and then gavotte again this emits a whimsical touch of vaudeville according to the notes all staccato at the opening a melodic figure emerges from the traveling staccato chords at a minute and 30 seconds a more romantic sounding b section is heard though the bass chords take it into shady harmonic territory the bass rumbles are acting as a drone in the musette and the opening gavotte returns after this brief departure. It ends on track 16 with a jig, which escalates into a scherzo tarantella, according to the booklet. It starts with pretty quick figuration, a jig in name if not overall feel. It's really busy and has some surprising departures from the continuous rhythm. Tracks 17 through 20 are a barker <laughs> It's all one piece, but it's divided into four tracks. These works are nebulously abstract in tone, so it's hard to think of the four parts as movements. It's a bit reminiscent of Liszt's eight tonal works called La Lugube Gondola, which he wrote towards the end of his life. Track 17 is labeled Part 1, Calmissimo ondeggiando, so wave forming. This starts with an ostinato rising and falling bass line with dark rippling effects in the piano's lower mid range. There's a menacing darkness to the piece. The section eventually gets into some rapid harmonized figuration in the right hand. In the last minute, the bass line disappears and rapid figuration leading to a pedal bass note is heard. A harsh but quiet chord ends the section. We go to track 18, part 2. This starts with a chiming effect in the high end of the piano. The metallic quality of the chords and their reliance on them reminds me a bit of Messiaen's piano works. The scales descend gradually in the middle of the keyboard, and then to the low end in the bass. Slowly, trilling figuration interrupts, but then the chords ascend to the top of the keyboard and disappear to end the section. Track nineteen is part three, and here we hear a phantom version of the barcarolle from Offenbach's Le Comte d'Offman In the high end of the keyboard, we hear an arpeggiated circling figure then some rumbling bass in the lower end. The reference to Offenbach isn't terribly obvious, the rhythm is there, but the harmony is odd. and This entire piece comes across as watery, and often in a disturbing Andine-like way. But it really doesn't signal Barcaroll beyond its title. I want to sample the section that recalls the barcarolle from uh, Le Conte d'Offman by Offenbach. Let's listen for that. Wanders harmonically quite a bit more than Offenbach does. Track 20, part 4, is a very brief section with diamond like Messian chords. In fact, it only has three chords, and then the piece is over. Track 21, variation diabolique. This is a pretty cute uh, play on words there. Variation diabolique sur le thème de Beethoven. Now, you would think diabolique, right? Like the devil, but here he's used the word diabolique, the kind of. Wordplay that we at uh, Adult Music really love to use in the titles of our episodes, <laughs> yeah. if we can we think of have one. We will have it this one, too. <laughs> oh, will we? Okay, I don't yes. remember what it is now. Okay. <laughs> the score instruction is marked serioso, but this work really isn't very serious to my ear. Pott calls this affectionately sacrilegious, <laughs> I guess that's about right, <laughs> and describes the listener's mindset as Beethoven trapped in a revolving door. I have a, a different <laughs> idea about that, but let's hear a sample first. To the theme there. So, the rhythm and theme circle around like a demented mind's thoughts, causing the head it's encased in to swirl like a gyroscope on a stormy sea. That was my image. It quietens down for a moment at the one minute mark, and the harmony is opaque and rather disturbed. It ends with a resounding, clear harmony. Tracks 22 through 32 are a Pavan Varier, and this is probably the most serious, if you can use that word, work on the uh, album. Track 22 starts moderato molto, and the theme comes across gently and familiarly. I'm not placing this, but I'm sure I've heard this theme before, or something like it. It may be in Handel, but another Baroque work. The harmony here is lovely and clear, really old school, like a Renaissance or Baroque work. Variation 1 on track 23 changes the theme quite a lot, adding some of Amlan's unusual harmony. Several techniques are used in the tight space, particularly scale figures. Track 24 has a quick theme, rather melodic and appealing, and this is the one I'm going to sample. And I feel like I have to come out of that one early since the entire track is only 36 seconds long. <laughs> Track 25, variation 3, quiet figures with louder chiming chords. The theme is easily discernible and the variation ends with an accelerando that leads to the next variation, number 4, track 26, which is rapid, has a wave-like motion to it with crescendos reaching a peak with the top of the figured line. It put me in mind of a rough sea. Track 27 is variation 5, Marziale. This continues from the last variation and has a galloping feel to it, It's rapid with strong syncopated accents. Track 28, variation 6, same tempo, continues from the previous variation. Ripples in the right hand are accompanied by a menacing bass scale low on the keyboard. Track 29, chorale, or chorale is what he labels this. Crystalline chords high up on the keyboard. There's a unison harmony at the 50 second mark with mid-range and very high notes outlining the theme. Variation 7, track 30, is still up in the higher mid-range, but the figuration comes across as something more from the 19th century. Track 31, variation 8, changes here to a heavier theme with a similar tempo. The change between variations is almost indiscernible. And we arrive at variation 9 at the end, track 32. The last variation starts loudly and emphatically. Let's sample that. (music) One minute and six seconds of pedal point and the bass starts tolling as the right hand plays tranquil chords and the piece ends with a harmony that makes one sit up wondering if there's more. Though quiet, the harmony takes us away from an ending. Tracks 33 through 35. There are a lot of tracks on this <laughs> album. They're all very short. This is a Chacon and it's uh, divided into three tracks. It was commissioned as a gift to Elizabeth Schock. Her name is spelled S-C-H-O-C-K. So its opening four notes encrypt the letters ESCH, where S is E-flat and H is B-natural. Judging from the album, Amlan is attracted to variations. The opening four notes outlining Shock's name on track 33 are pretty stark, and Amlan plays that up as his bass line lengthens. Let's hear the opening of this Chaconne. Yet, but remember a Chaconne is a um, a set of variations or sort of continuous material over a repeating bass line. So we hear that bass line repeat as in a proper chaconne. while Amlan plays some pretty improvisatory material above it. It sounds spur of the moment, though later on the figuration starts changing specifically enough to make the material sound like variations over the bass line. The first section gets pretty explosive toward the end. Amlan obviously enjoying the rich sound of the bass and the, the piano makes. He makes that particularly resonant, the right hand playing some crazed harmonies. Track 34, still the Chaconne. Un poco più lento. It's a very brief section with the bass line heard harmonized with crystalline sounds in the upper end of the keyboard. This is pretty straightforward, except that uh, some of the harmonics produced by Amlon's Harmony are pretty interesting. It sort of peters out on the last few notes. Track 35, Tempo Primo. This is broken up into continuing arpeggiated material. It picks up harmony as it goes sort of like a snowball rolling down a hill and getting bigger. By the first minute, we're hearing a totally opaque harmony booming out of the speaker until we get a fortissimo that hits the chest cavity at the end. Lots of amlan virtuosity, too. At the 2 minute and 20 second mark or so, the music suddenly stops, and a quieter, unharmonized line starts, wandering down toward the bass. After a move high up on the piano, the piece ends with tolling chords. Track 36, Meditation on Laura from 2011. Now, Laura is the name of a 1944 film starring Gene Tierney and Dana Andrews, and David Raskin composed the song Laura for that film. Amlan's meditation on it is described on the score as an improvisation and an interior monologue. You're alone in a bar, everyone's left, it's merely a succession of moments, some true to the song, some half or ill-remembered. You are playing for an audience of none except you. And we can hear the melody of the song in a rather floating, ghostly fashion at the beginning. Let's hear that. doesn't really get any more solid than what you heard, the melody wafting around the various settings Amlan comes up with for it. The piece sort of wanders around like this for over five minutes. It sort of puts me in mind of Liszt's late atonal works, like the previously mentioned Lugubre Gondola. The melody fades into the decorative lines that emerge from it. Finally, track 37, the final track on the album, another little surprise here, Toccata on L'Homme armé*. Uh, this is composed in 2016. It was commissioned for the 2017 Van Clyburn International Piano Competition. Now, many composers took this popular song from the 15th century as the theme of their mass settings. You can look for that online as Misa Lomar May. The opening line of the song means, the armed man is to be feared. And this sounds like a piece that pianists will fear to play. Luckily we have Amlan himself to play it. It begins with discordant loud chords, then tremolo figuration. And we hear the melody, the Lamarmay Marmé theme, at uh, about 28 seconds. So I want to just sample that part. can hear the excitement building up there. It goes off from here into some pretty traditional virtuosic lines, but as always with Amlan's compositions, it's going to give our harmonic sensibilities a workout. The theme sort of picks up a galloping quality, which is appropriate given the theme and time period it comes from, and the piece really starts roaring at the end, and it reaches a big fortissimo ending chord. Let's hear the end, well we're not gonna hear the ending, but let's hear the piece when it really gets going. that uh, La Marmée theme again. There's a big chord at the end, and that's the end of the album. So Marc-Andre Amlan is a gift to pianism, and it's a good thing we have him around to play his own compositions, because I'm not sure anyone else could put these across as well, (laughs) let alone play them at all. All of the works are highly virtuosic, but they also contain turns of wit and humor that a lot of pianists may not pick up on. Amlan as the composer, of course, knows where all of these are, and he Make sure you hear them, too, as long as you're attuned to what he's attuned to. This is, for the most part, a pretty nutty album as far as an overall mood goes, but that shouldn't make you stay away. In fact, fans of piano music throughout history would absolutely love this album of works, full of allusions to works and styles of the past. I think we can safely say that these are definitive performances of all of these works. (laughs) I think we should be glad that a man with a mind like Marc-Andre Amlan is a pianist and not a mad scientist because life would be really dangerous for us all if that were the case.
1: Amand's compositions really give you insight into how he sees the piano as a performer. There are a lot of explorations of techniques and things that he can do that seem to be searching for a musical destination. (laughs) Um, But he doesn't dwell in dissonance, but sometimes he seems to enjoy taking you on a rough road just as an interesting way to a neat resolution. There's a good dose of humor with pulling the rug out from under you in certain expectations, and then inserting something familiar in unlikely spots. So it kind of keeps surprising you, and it's also a lot of fun on the way here. And as you say, you can't imagine anyone else being able to play these compositions. Okay, over on the jazz side, we're going to keep the piano idea going, because well, on my list of releases, piano trios or piano... Based musical groups are always the largest, so I always have a lot to choose from, and so I picked three recent releases that really caught my ear. The first one is called Face to Face Volume 1. This is by pianist Gheorghi Mikadze and his trio. Now Georgi is from Georgia, started out as a classical pianist, winning numerous classical piano competitions, then moving on to jazz. He received a full scholarship to Berklee College of Music, and a presidential scholarship at Manhattan School of Music. In 2021, he officially joined the Berklee College of Music faculty as an associate professor. Gioge has performed with a lot of famous artists in various genres uh, in jazz, including Jack DeJohnette, Roy Hargrove, Dave Liebman, Lee Rittenauer, Antonio Sanchez, Chris Potter, and a lot of others. This album, Face to Face, recorded in 2023, is his first piano trio recording and he explores the musical tradition of his native Georgia with melodies and memories from his childhood. Quote, I love the American songbook, that's how I learned to play jazz, but I would like to offer the world a Georgian songbook and share all these beautiful melodies from my country. Continuing his quote, Georgian classical composers of the 60s, 70s, and 80s were heavily influenced by the harmony and freedom of jazz music. Jazz was kind of taboo at the time, but the Georgian people would try to crack old radios to listen to Willis Conover on The Voice of America. So this album also features several of his original compositions influenced by Georgian folk harmony. Now, I'm always interested when international jazz musicians bring something unique from their own culture or ethnic background into the music as a basis for song material. We've heard Bulgarian jazz that incorporated some like folk rhythms and dances. Just a couple weeks ago, we heard uh, Japanese American trumpeter June Ida pick up a few Japanese melodies and tunes to bring in. So I was drawn to the idea of this recording. However, not knowing anything about Georgian music myself, I wrote to Georgi and Pee Wee Records to get some information about the composers and songs, additional information, but I didn't get a reply. Oh, well. <laughs> However, fortunately, DL Media Music that represents the record label here has a promotion page where I could get some additional background. So try to fill in some of the blanks on the sources of music. So we've got Georgi Mikadze on piano and all the arrangements, Francois Moutin on acoustic bass, and Raphael Panier on drums. And let's see how I can butcher some pronunciation of (laughs) names uh, for this recording. Uh, the first track is called Sachi Dao, and this is Mikaze's original composition. It's said to be a reimagining of a well-known melody traditionally sung during wrestling matches. Imagine that. <laughs> well, put on your seatbelt right away for the super subdivided and syncopated tune. The melody section has a repeating eight-measure rapid-fire piano part with a little break at the end before a repeat. Then there's a new section, like a variation, that goes around twice. Let's hear it get started. From there, it kind of stretches out a bit in feel with some cool exchanges with Mutan's bass before Mikadze gets into improvisations, incorporating some of those speedy ideas from the melody over an evolving beat from Panier that drives him to more percussive ideas and drum fills over a chord vamp. It's pretty intense, building to a break before they get back to a shortened melody section. Let's skip ahead to hear a little bit more of that exciting stuff going on. Track two is called Not Easy to Repeat by composer David Toradze. This is for the 1960 melodrama Last Day, First Day, which follows a postman on the eve of retirement as he shows his route to the young woman who'll take it over. It has kind of a meandering intro with a spaced out teasing piano figures for the first 30 seconds or so. After a little pause, Mikadze brings in the lovely melody that goes in and out of time with rebuttal phrasing. Listen for Mutan's ringing bass figures and the little flourishes that Mikadze adds. Let's check it out from where the melody section really gets going about a half minute in. nice brushwork and cymbal touches from Panier there too. Mikadze's improvisations show off his light touch and sensitive articulation on this one, and we get to hear the pretty melody again with a tasty ending. Track 3 is called Dolls Are Laughing. This is by Sulkan Tsintsadze, a Georgian composer known for his chamber music and film scores. This is from the 1963 comedy Tojinebi Itsinian this one unfolds gently starting from a bass ostinato and some steady tom rhythms marking out a three four meter with mikadze working soft lines into the melody the rhythmic feel shifts a lot as it goes on panier seems to match intuitively as a drummer let's hear from the main melody and through some of those changes once it gets going Khan has a really pleading bass solo with high reaches in this tune, so let's check out a little bit of that later on. piano solo on this one has a lot of forward motion that Panier really shifts to drive along. It builds to a climax and dissipates with light flurries of clear cymbals back into the bass, ostinato, and melody. Track four is called Same Garden. This is by Shota Milarova, a film composer, and this is from a 1970s animated movie. This has an interesting juxtaposition of subdivided soft drums in busy, percolating bass under Mikadze's placid piano lines. He seems to be gradually coaxed into being more rhythmic, working the melody into a grander theme, and launching into animated improvisations. Take a listen to see what I'm describing once the tune gets started. Abadze's improvised solo here is really exciting and explosive, so let's skip ahead to hear some of that as well. vamp quietly for Mutan to get center attention for a solo of squiggly figures <laughs> like he's been working throughout the tune. They bring it back down, really soft to work back into the melody, Mikadze working up some rhythmic excitement, but then bringing it back down for a soft and cute ending. Track five is called The Moon Over Tsatsminda by Yanush Kakidze, a singer and composer who conducted the Georgian State Symphony Orchestra for two decades. Mikadze says, Kakidze wrote all the most famous songs that you hear throughout Georgia. I collaborate often with his son, conductor Vakhtang Kakidze, who told me to make sure I listened to his father's phrasing in order to play it properly. While a soft rubato piano opening gets joined by ringing bass as a pretty intro to this ballad, it's slow with delicate brushwork from Panier. Mikaze takes his time, bringing out the charm of the melody with rich harmonizations. Mutan has a particularly expressive bass solo in this one. Mikadze's solo has great phrasing with trickles of notes. They bring it down soft and leave the piano solo on its own for a bit on return to the melody before it swells up with ringing bass cymbals and piano chords to a climax before a quiet piano ending. Track six. This is one of Mikadze's originals, Nana, it evokes a beautiful peak nestled in the Caucasus mountains, it says. It begins as a ballad with a unique idea, a high bowed G on the bass. The piano repeats that note like a pedal tone under the rubato melody, it becomes more rhythmic with piano figures getting into tempo, with bass and drums setting a 6-8 groove. Mutan has a bass solo working into the high register, and with some impressive speedy runs. Mikadze's solo here is full of rhythmic excitement and speedy ideas. When it gets back to the melody, the intensity dissipates back into a solo rubato piano section and the return of the pedal g in the piano and bass before it ends track seven also a mikadze original after the tale this is described as a response to igavi a nodar gabunya composition based on a georgian folk tale and we'll hear one of his compositions coming up A solo rubato, piano start, Mikadze displays smooth legato playing, and some interesting sparse harmonies. It creates an introspective atmosphere. Bass and drums join in at about two and a half minutes, and Mikadze becomes more syncopated and animated, working into some interesting short phrased improvisations that become more connected. It gets pretty worked up with some furious drumming into percussive chords. Let's hear some of that climax later in the tune. Come down, softer for a bass solo, and a final rhythmic piano melody section to end it. Track 8, A Magic Egg by Gia Concelli. This is from a 1970s animation song. It does a really animated and playful intro. There's a repeated eight measure section of rhythmic piano, and then it gets into contrasting, laid-back, and then agitated phrases, coming to a pause just about at the one-minute mark. So let's hear this get going. Getting into the main melody, the playfulness continues with syncopated chords, a loping swing feel, and interjections of the agitated introduction figures we just heard. It's constantly changing. Mikadze's solo has a lot of speedy runs and great interaction with Mutan's bass. Well actually all three are really super locked in here, the synergy is great. So let's move up and listen to a little of that interplay. Building excitedly with the return of the contrasting phrases, Pania gets some time to mix up around the drums over softer piano before Mikadze gives a final, relaxed exposition of the melody. Track 9 to Nodar, this is by Nodar Gabunya, pianist, composer, and teacher. It starts with solo rubato, piano, and a ringing pedal G note transforms from a mysterious contemplative mood to more joyful ripples of piano after a minute, with bass and cymbals joining in, keeping the free-flowing movement. It's quite pretty, with a continuous flow through the piece. It's really hard to pick out a sample, so I recommend you have a listen to the whole track by yourself. Track 10, Wind Takes It Away. This is by Rusudan Sebisk vs Adze. It was a pop song. Pania gets it started with a unique soft drum beat for 12 measures that foreshadows the ebbing and flowing quality of the melody phrases. So let's take a listen to the beginning of this. Attractive pop melody, Mikadze's improvisations are melodic and flowing, mixing in some speedier lines and rhythmic figures, so let's hear some of his solo later in the tune. it up to ringing chords and then back through the melody to relaxed chords over the soft busy drum beat to finish up the recording. This was unique and intriguing. The Georgian melodies proved to be fit material for jazz exploration. They're all attractive, if unfamiliar to most people outside of Georgia, It would take me a few more listens and maybe a comparison to the originals to get more familiar with the structures. Nevertheless, in Mikadze's hands, they lend themselves to interesting interpretations and harmonizations, his original compositions mixing in rather seamlessly as well. There's a big variety of approaches to the songs. Most of them go through a lot of rhythmic transformations, highlighting the synergy of the trio. Bikadze's technique is matched by his musicality of phrasing and creative ideas that burst out of his solos. Excellent bass solos from Mutan as well. A completely fresh-sounding jazz recording. Yeah,
0: the album presents a variety of styles, and some of them adding that uh, East European spice yeah. into the rhythm and harmony. And others were played with a warm tone throughout. I really like the entire like sound of it. Hmm. There's also a great sense of form on a lot of the tracks, and I thought the same garden particularly had a satisfying through line. It ends suddenly on a tonic chord, giving it a sense of an ending. And even the piano song on that track had a great sense of shape and ending to it. So the record sort of mellows more as it goes. I thought with the exception of the rhythmically challenging A Magic Egg, which is said was by uh, Guilla Concha, a classical composer, who, whose music was recorded on the ECM label. Uh, okay. I think I might have two or three of those albums in the back there. So I was interested to hear that. You know, we get to hear a lot of Mikasa's warmth towards the end and drumming and bass playing are both inventive too with the drums getting a hitting of the palm sound on most tracks. I don't know how he's making that sound. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, see, through, through the whole album he does that. And the bass playing has some uh, good exploratory solos. So yeah, it's just really fresh sounding and interesting album. And this is a, another reason why you want to kind of branch out and listen to music, you know, jazz from outside of the US or even outside of Western Europe because it's just... It's so much more like cultural things that we're not familiar with, uh, you know, come into it. Right. And I always find that really interesting. It's really what I find interesting
1: about classical music, too. Yeah, keeps it fresh. Mm. All right. Our next album is by pianist Jeffrey Dean. It's called Foundations. It's on the AMP Music and Records label. Came out February 2nd. Dr. Jeffrey Dean is a jazz pianist, composer, author, and educator who performs in the Washington, D.C. area. He completed his undergraduate studies at Berklee College of Music and a master's of jazz studies at the University of Tennessee, and his doctorate of musical arts in jazz performance at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. He has recorded and performed with notable jazz musicians all around the world, Terrell Stafford, Steve Touré, Greg Tardy, to give you a few that have been on our podcast and we enjoy as well. The debut recording for this group. Of musicians here, Foundations, features a straight-ahead jazz repertoire of lesser-known hard bop compositions from some of the era's greatest composers and beyond. Played with modern sensibilities, this is from the notes, these compositions were chosen as music that has been foundational in the group's growth as musicians, while many may not be known as common standards." Well, basically originals by other great jazz musicians. I like these kind of albums that go back and remind us not to forget these original compositions from the past. And that's one of the reasons I chose it. Jeffrey Dean on piano. Harish Raghavan on bass. He's got quite a resume too. Recording with Kurt Elling, Vijay Iyer, Ambrose Mosire, Eric Harland, Mark Turner, Greg Osby, Benny Green, and a whole list of others. And we've got Eric Binder on drums and Justin Copeland on trumpet. The recording gets started with a cyclic episode. This is by saxophonist Sam Rivers. It's from his 1964's Fuchsia Swing Song*, which was recorded right after he left Miles Davis's quintet. This gets going right on the 16 measure melody, with Copeland giving it a light and fluffy toned treatment. The minor chord progressions are interesting, and it's open sounding with sparse ringing bass notes. They take it around twice, and then Raghavan is up for a bass solo. Let's hear this get going. out of that solo into a walk and things get more swinging for Copeland's trumpet solo that works up from shorter phrased ideas and gets up high, has some cool interval jumps in his lines. Dean's piano solo works up nicely with interesting rhythmic ideas in his phrases, so let's hear some of his solo to get a sense of his style as a pianist. that back to the melody for a couple rounds to wrap up the tune. Track two is Blue Minor from pianist Sonny Clark. It's from his 1958 album Cool Struttin'. This is an appealing tune with a fun minor melody. It's an AABA 32 measure form with stop-up rhythm section and lots of syncopation on the A section and a switch to Latin on the B with some brighter chords. Copeland continues on from there, soloing. Let's hear it get started. double time lines and sense of space that he works into. Dean's piano solo has a nice sense of swing and again interesting rhythmic ideas in his lines. Another time through the melody and an extra final chord finishes up the tune. Track three is My Conception from Sonny Clark, 1959, the album of the same name. Really gorgeous ballad playing on this one. Dean gives a four-measure intro and Copland takes the melody. It's an A-A-B-A 32 measure form. Big warm tone and wonderful lyrical phrasing. Dean solos over the A section, and Copeland is back for the final B and A with a pretty ending. Track 4 ESP, kind of a well-known tune from Wayne Shorter from Miles Davis's album 1965 ESP. A fast swing but relaxed phrasing on this one with Copeland's nice melody playing. The tune is a 32 measure construction, similar 16 measure halves but with different final phrases. Copeland continues on improvising. He squeezes out some high trills and fast lines on this one. Let's hear some of his solo. To go on the drums after that keeping it subdued but interesting before copeland is back with the melody and some final ideas to end it track five is that so from pianist duke pearson his 1965 album honey buns and interestingly we heard another tune you know i care from the same album a few weeks ago with uh, joe de la barbara and bill cunliffe so the album pops back up hmm. this is a sunny swinging tune there's a four measure intro phrase and the melody is a 24-bar construction that goes around twice. There's a melody phrase that gets modulated around through the interesting chord progressions. Dean solos first here with a nice swing and light touch, so let's hear some of that on this tune. Things start to get a little sparse for the beginning of Copeland's trumpet solo, and he works up from relaxed and lyrical ideas into more driving phrases as the rhythm section gets it chugging again. Raghavan has a rhythmically interesting bass solo with ringing notes before Copeland returns with the melody into the lifting final chords. Track six is Low Tide from pianist Elmo Hope, his 1966 Final Sessions, Volume One recording. That was before his untimely death in 1967. Binder gets an eight-measure drum opening. Dean and Copeland work the melody in unison. It's really just an eight-measure sequence around twice. I like the unexpected chord change in the seventh measure. Dean is off soloing from there for a swinging solo with a lot of great melodic ideas, and Raghavan has a bass solo next, so let's hear some of his bass playing on this tune. gets to do some more drum work next before they go around the short melody to a final chord. Track 7, Nardis, Miles Davis' tune, written to be performed on Cannonball Adderley's 1958 Portrait of Cannonball, was also recorded many times by Bill Evans. Well, the Cannonball Adderley version of this is rather slow, and Bill Evans recorded it at different tempos, even sometimes kind of quickly, but here they have an interesting take. It starts out with some high bowed bass from Ragovan and improvised lines from Copeland that work into a rubato version of the melody. Copeland gets to work in some pitch bending and minor modal ideas. Let's hear some of that working into the familiar main melody. i like those tom fills from binder underneath and they work through the tune all the way in similar fashion with some interesting piano lines from dean under copeland's explorations some of those ideas remind me of uh, what is it from sketches of spain the saeta uh, track there yeah, i thought this was a neat treatment of the tune track eight, Jetstream. This is Nurem from guitarist Peter Bernstein, one of the biggest players in New York there, 1995's Signs of Life. This is a happy boppish tune. Binder gives it a four-measure drum intro, and then Dean and Copeland take the melody together. It's a 32-measure structure with some interesting modulations of the melodic figures, and it gets Copeland way up high on the melody lines uh, into a solo break. Let's hear this one get started. agility in his solo lines. Dean has a solo next with snappy figures and rhythmic chords pushing it along, and it wraps up with another go of the melody and an extended coda ending. Track 9, the final track, Yokada Yokada from pianist Andrew Hill, his 1964 album Judgment. This is an unusual tune, a 12-bar blues kind of construction with interesting chords and a drum break from the 8th to the 10th measure. Copeland joins in the second time around, and then Dean is off on a solo. Let's hear it get going. fun solo with some cool harmonic ideas and bluesy excursions too. They thin it out for Copeland to start soloing and he does some interesting meandering and cool working out of a repeated line and repeated note ideas. Twice around the melody with a final trill and squeezed note from Copeland finishes it up. That's it. The whole recording has a relaxed but swinging vibe. That's down to Dean's rather light but swinging touch. Even though he usually isn't forceful, his piano lines always have interesting rhythmic variations. Copland has a warm, often soft tone and handles the melodic lines lyrically. Creative and playful solos all around, especially from Copland, Raghavan and Binder work tightly together and they bring in a lot of dynamic contrast and variety to the rhythms. I like this idea of recording originals of great jazz musicians of the past that we don't often hear. There's a lot of variety here and the familiar Nardis gets a creative reinterpretation. Put it on and rediscover, or maybe discover, some of these great compositions from the past in a fresh setting.
0: Yeah, they all sound really great here too. The album is pretty straightforward and it's nicely played and there's some good ideas in the solos too. It was really enjoyable. Hmm. I particularly was drawn to the pianist. I thought he managed to come up with a lot of appealing ideas in his solos and he kind of extended them in an appealing way too. A lot of ideas that I really resonated with. Trumpet tone throughout is really full and beautiful yeah. and it stays that way during faster solos like the one in ESP too. The bass solos were pretty melodic also with interesting ideas and really all in all, this is an enjoyable jazz album with a lot of good ideas. It was just really straightforward, enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Nothing to, uh, you know, complete about here. Really good stuff. I liked it a lot. Yeah, it felt really good. It felt really familiar.
1: All right, and our final recording is To the Surface from pianist Lawrence Fields on Rhythm & Flow Records. Also came out February 2nd. Fields from St. Louis has, for the last five years, made the Downbeat Magazine Rising Stars Critics Poll. Fields is a member of several bands led or co led by saxophonist Joe Lovano and his Sound Prince quintet with trumpeter Dave Douglas. He's also collaborated with Christian Scott, the trumpeter, on several albums and played or recorded with Branford Marsalis, drummer Jeff Tane Watts, vibraphonist Warren Wolf, and saxophonists Jaleel Shaw and Steve Slagle, trumpeter Nicholas Payton, and bassist Christian McBride. Fields is also featured on Christopher North's score for the new Sam Pollard documentary, Max Roach, The Drum Also Waltzes, which premiered in October 2023 on PBS's American Masters television series. And this is his debut recording as a leader. So we've got Lawrence Fields on piano, Yasushi Nakamura on bass, a great bassist based out of New York. He's actually born in Tokyo, but moved to the U.S. at age nine. Corey Fonville on drums. All songs, except for one, are composed by Lawrence Fields. More about that later. This was recorded and mixed at Big Orange Sheep in New York City and produced by Lawrence Fields. Recording starts out with a tune called The Parachute. Fields starts out with a solo one-minute intro that will give you an idea of his technique and bubbling ideas that characterize the album. So let's just begin by listening to that. gets into tempo with rhythmic figures for four measures. The tune's in a 5-4 meter. Bass and drums join in for a few more rounds of that. The main melody develops in eight measure sections. It's rhythmically riffy, and there's another final different section that he changes up and then launches off into more linear improvisations. His lines change direction quickly, always surprising over the steady syncopated bass pulses of Nakamura. Let's hear a little of that solo action going on later in the tune. has a lot of creative drum fills along the way there, and he moves on to locking in his left hand, does fields with the bass, and has shorter rhythmic figure ideas in the right hand. Rather than returning to the melody idea, the ending builds up on a repeated rhythmic phrase to a big hold with rising piano chords. Track two is New Season Blues a fast, free-flowing 12-bar blues with interesting chords. Fields takes it around the structure twice and then launches into improvisations. Nakamura has pulsing bass, and Fonville keeps the cymbals light and dancing. Bass and drums drop out, allowing Fields to go on a blues exploration for multiple choruses of all kinds of ideas. When they return, Nakamoto is working a furious bass walk and things are swinging hard. Fields gets more harmonically explorative with chords continuing on, and Nakamoto gets a bass solo in which he keeps the walking going with some interesting rhythmic figures and slides added in. Let's check out some of this neat bass solo. around the blues melody, and final phrase vamps to a fade out. Track three, moving on. A solo piano opening with skittering lines building into chords and ripples. After a hold, Fields comes in with a more steady rhythmic melody for 16 measures. Bass and drums join in, and it continues on developing the idea. Let's check out a little bit of that once it gets going. Fields' solo here starts melodic, playing around with ideas from the original melody with interesting chord variations and colors. He takes it more rhythmic into ringing chords as it develops, and then has more explorative right-hand lines. They bring it down softer to bring back the melody, and Fields has some final improvised ideas as it builds energy, but to a fade-out. There's a lot of fade-outs on here, Mike. (laughs)
2: Mm,
0: No, coming up especially.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Track 4, LBF. This is a solo rubato piano piece. There seems to be a repeating A section and longer contrasting B section before it returns. The ending becomes interestingly more impressionistic. It's a pretty melody that he decorates with a lot of harmonic colors. Track 5, the title track to the surface. This one has kind of an insistence to it, moving along in 8 beat phrases started up by fields and joined by bass and drums more of chordal ideas than melody line, really. Fields moves into improvised explorations. Fawnville has a lot of exciting drum fills going on, as Fields gets into more linear ideas with snappy right-hand figures. Let's just drop in midway to hear some of what's going on on this tune. dropping these huge bass bombs (laughs) underneath there. (laughs) It pretty much continues on in that fashion with more explorations coming down a bit in intensity after five minutes before building back up but to a fade out. Track six, Yasori, which is Yasushi plus Corey. So he took the (laughs) first half of both their first names and put them together. This is a number with a funky groove, a funky bass line is worked by Nakamoto and Fields left hand together. It's short at only 2 minutes and 41 seconds and works to a fade out as well. Let's just jump in midway where there's a little break and some animated lines from Fields at about a minute. Idea of this tune. Track seven Vision. This has a unique groove set up in the 8-measure introduction. Nakamoto has repeated ringing quarter note bass notes with a syncopation every other measure that pushes it forward. The melody is 32 measures before Fields reaches out into improvisations. There's kind of a 4 against 6 feel between Nakamura's bass quarter notes and Fonville's cymbals, and the swinging 6-beat feel comes out stronger in Fields' soloing. Let's hear him get going with some ideas a little bit into the tune. bring it back to the original melody feel with the repeated bass notes and simple cymbals and it gets more of a bounce to the rhythm with some final animated improvisations from Fields before it softens over ringing bass. Track 8, the only standard and non-field composition on the album I Fall In Love Too Easily, Jules Stein's Semicon Standard. Fields gives it an interesting dreamy introduction, so let's check that out. Familiar melody there with slow ballad treatment. Here we get to hear Fields work on something familiar. His phrasing and articulation is gentle and light, and Nakamura gets a ringing melodic bass solo on this tune, and he has such a great tone. We should just check out a little bit of that. Nice and melodic playing there. Fields keeps it classy in his solo, showing off a nice touch with some rippling tremolos underneath and speedy high register lines. He teases with melody phrases into building chords rather than get back straight into the melody, and gets an extended solo piano ending, working more ideas around the melody. Track 9 is called Sketches. It's a short tune at a minute and 40 seconds with a funky groove vamp. It fades in for some rhythmic fun from Fields with the chords, and then it fades out. And the last tune on the album is The Lookout, a minor swinging tune with 16 measure sections in an ABAB form before Fields is off into improvised lines. Let's hear it get going. Fields' improvisations are playful and fleet on this one, getting some nice harmonic exploration as well. And it takes off on a real swinging groove once it gets going. So let's hear some of that energy. Finally connecting back to the melody where it comes down in intensity, they go around the A-B pattern once, and then it vamps on with some time for Fawnville to work around the drum kit to the ending. Fields certainly has all of the ingredients, great technique, hard swinging feel, and endless ideas. His compositions lean toward the free side, and sometimes you're not sure where the melody ends and the improvising begins. But that's cool because it's always bursting with energy. There are a variety of grooves that often change up and are packed with great fills from Fawnville, who has super clear cymbal sounds throughout the recording. Nakamoto's bass is strong and steady with great tone. An exciting pianist to look out for and see what he does next. Yeah, I certainly thought
0: so. He has an excellent like harmonic sense as well, like a sense of like shaping a solo from beginning to end. Hmm. It has kind of an architecture to it that I was really kind of had me, like, really listening in. Right. I'm thinking of uh, the harmonic sense in his intro to and solo in Parachute. He builds the solo excitingly in track three, moving on via his use of harmony and dynamics. And hearing him in the solo track LBF had me thinking that his harmony is like uh, sort of being in a Japanese garden where you are you have a completely new perspective with each new section of the garden, like you turn right. out mm. you know what I mean? I kind of got that, like, he'd make some kind of harmonic change and you're suddenly in this new space Hmm. you know it was really kind of a bit of harmonic magic i thought he was doing there his harmony revealed like new possibilities with each change and it kind of kept me wondering where it was going to lead. right he's an appealing and intelligent pianist and there's a lot of formality a lot of harmonic finish to his playing Um, i enjoyed listening to this and wondering where he was going to go good backup from the drums and bass and the bass lays down some heartfelt solos as well while the drums liven up during solo segments Fields, for me though, is very much the star here. This was really great, and this was probably my favorite uh, jazz recording of the week, really. I liked it a lot.
1: I remember the first time I listened to it, you know, I'll pick up some new recordings and then during the week, I just mm-hmm. want to do kind of a relaxed listening, not right. a note-taking listening we have to do to prepare for the podcast, but right. this was just sort of blooming out of the speakers with all these ideas. And I said, man, this is really exciting, I've got to get this one in an episode. So. Like to to, good choice. Special. Yeah, cool. Well there you have it. Three very different but appealing piano recordings in jazz to go with all the keyboards and classical. Pretty nice episode all around, I'd say. Pretty challenging episode too. Yeah. In some ways. (laughs) Yeah. In a lot of ways, yeah.
0: Hopefully we us talking about the music made it less challenging, at least in the classical part. I was that's what I was going for.
1: Yeah. We've got a plan for next week, too. You've got a special theme in the classical section. I do. It's all women. And I just want to say something like
0: this. It's all women composers. And I'm not choosing it as all women composers because they're all women. That was just my theme. That's what they had in common. But these were recordings that I really want to hear. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a new Finnish composer that I'm not unfamiliar with. And the French label, La Boite Pepite, who releases music only by women composers, has um, exhumed someone from the early 20th century or late 19th century that I'm interested in. And uh, we get a chamber music uh, recording from Chandos, too, of um, some French composers as well. And a lot of these names I've always been kind of curious about. Oh, interesting. Looking forward to hearing those.
1: In jazz, I've got a couple of uh, sax recordings that are just burning a hole in my ear. Another hole <laughs> <laughs> that is. We've got Austrian saxophonist Lucas Gabrik and a cordless trio recording from Jim Snedero, his new release. And one that I listened to last night a couple times because I liked it so much. It's by alto saxophonist Peter DiCarlo. And uh, those are all really exciting. So we're going to have a bunch of sax for jazz next week.
0: Yeah, and next week's uh, episode is going to have another sax pun in it, isn't it? We just Probably can't get so. away from that. Yeah, of course Probably. it is, because we've we're still
1: children. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll come up with something unique, and yeah. uh, as we will for uh, this episode too. I've okay. already got it noted down. But good, good, okay. All right, so let's look forward to. If you want to check out those recordings early, they'll be up on a playlist on Deezer couple hours after this episode gets published you can also find a link to it on our facebook page so come over there to check that out and also get any new releases i find before next week's episode as always we want to say thanks to fast signs of staten island for our glowing neon logo and also be sure to check out the same difference two jazz fans one jazz standard podcast their little audio promo will be coming up when we sign off here any final words mike no (laughs) <laughs> there
0: right. aren't any final words <laughs> I said my final words before all right, but I then. guess these would be my final words now.
1: This has been episode 153. We'll be back again next week with episode 154. So until then, keep listening and we'll see you again next time.
0: Same difference two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards,